you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 18. And uh, just a reminder for those that have uh, school-age kids, if interested in the, in the lobby, there are some red folders that have sermon outline notes that you can help follow along in a fill-in-the-blank way to help keep track of what we're seeing in God's Word this morning. We've been going through Matthew's Gospel for quite some time now, and this morning I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. Hear now the Word of the Lord. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This is the word of the Lord. I can't believe I'm having to say this, but there used to be a form of media called newspaper. And I know a lot of you, and I'm not joking, I know a lot of you are not familiar with how a newspaper worked. And so I need to explain briefly that a newspaper is, you know, it would have, as you would expect, news, but it would have a lot of other things. And it was divided up into all these sections. And so when you got a newspaper, you could you could go to the world news section or the national news, the local news, the sports, the, uh, the letters to the editor where people in the community could write in and share their thoughts. Uh, you could do what I always did, which is go straight for the comics. Uh, you could go to the classifieds and see what's for sale. Lots of different parts of the newspaper. Now, suppose you had a big you know, Sunday edition newspaper with all these sections in it, and, and you want to know what's going on in the world today. What is the news? And so you pull out three sections, the comics, the letters to the editor, and the sports. Are you going to get a very accurate assessment of what's happening in the world? Probably not, okay? Or, or let's say that you, ha- you are married and you, you are wondering about your spouse's level of affection for you, and you want to research and indicate and, and have some idea how much your spouse loves you, and so you go and check their sock drawer the change console in their car, and their Netflix queue. Are you getting a very accurate picture of how that person loves you? Probably not. You can read into a lot of those things, but you're not getting the whole story. Where is this going? When we want to know how God loves us, when we are uncertain or fearful that we've not been loved as we seek to be loved, And we want to know, how does God love me? We too easily look to the wrong things. We look to how we feel that morning. We look to events and circumstances in our lives. We look to our bank account. We look to things that are never meant to communicate God's love to us. And therefore, we get the wrong story. Where do we go to get the right story? What Jesus is trying to show us in this passage of Scripture, is the length that He will go to for the ones that He loves. The ones that He calls His own. And as we unpack that and see what kind of love He has for us, it should move us in two directions. One, it moves us inwardly to a deep, emotional, personal level, challenging destructive and false views that we have about ourselves. 
but it should also propel us outward towards others with a renewed understanding of how we should see and how we should relate to the people that God has so loved. So what kind of love does God have for His people? In these verses, we're going to see that it's a love that welcomes, it's a love that pursues, and it's a love that rejoices. And each of those is significant to understanding God's love for His people. First, we see a love that welcomes us. When Jesus in these verses says, little ones, He talks about the little ones. Where do your thoughts automatically go? Who's He talking about when you hear the word little ones? You think, children, little ones, little in stature, little in size. But as we've been going through Matthew lately, especially last week as we looked at the previous verses, we saw, for example, in Matthew 18, verse 3, that He said that all of us, anybody that wants to enter the kingdom of God, needs to humble themselves like a child. Not that that's a good, just a good idea. It's in fact necessary. If you do not do so, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And what we looked at last week was that he was not picking out any specific characteristic of a child. Oh, you need to be innocent like a child, trusting like a child, this, that, or the other. No, he was addressing people who were competing and arguing over which one of them was the best. And he said, look, a child can't do that. He was talking about the status of a child. A child has no position of power. A child can't boast over others. It's not the character, but the status of the child that we're to take on. We're to relinquish all pursuit of being great in the eyes of other people. But instead, humble ourselves and say, look, I'm just a kid here. And then he went on in verse 5 to say that we should receive people like that. The little ones, the ones who are lowly, the ones who are humble, the ones who are not popular, the ones who have nothing to boast about. Instead of, as, as our tendency seems to be, we try to, to ingratiate ourselves to the great people of the world. We want to be around the wealthy, the powerful, the strong, the influential, the popular, the well-connected, because we, we want some overflow of their greatness to lift us up. And Jesus says, no, don't do that. The gospel fills your capacity for love to the limit and overflowing so that you can seek out those who are lowly, those who are despised, those who are unpopular, and those are the ones that you need to receive and welcome. So when in verse 10, Jesus says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, He's not talking exclusively about the physically little ones. He's talking about what He's been talking about. Those who are on the outside. Those who are not the popular ones, the powerful ones, the mighty ones of the world. Don't despise the little ones. But rather... Receive and welcome those who he describes in Matthew 5, verse 3, are poor in spirit. They are the blessed ones, not special or important according to the world's standards. And he says, don't despise them, which means don't look down on them. Don't be prejudiced against them. Treat them unfavorably. We're not to treat people poorly simply because they're nothing special in our eyes. In fact, with everyone we, we encounter, we're to begin with a baseline of respect because all people, sinful or holy, righteous, unrighteous, all people are made in the image of God and reflect His image. And therefore, for that reason alone, Scripture teaches us that they are worthy to be cherished and respected. Based on what He's been saying so far, these little ones are those who are part of His kingdom, those who follow Him, His children. So not only because of the image of God, but also because these are the ones for whom Christ died. 
Therefore, we are to not despise them, but instead welcome them. As I was thinking about that and, and how we tend to falsely view other people, I was reminded of the Apostle Paul in a relationship with a church in Corinth. And he had a, a really great relationship with Corinth. They had some issues, um, which are responsible for two of the books in the New Testament. And, and one of the big issues was they kept turning towards these fancy-schmancy orators, these, these excellent speakers who dress nice, well-connected, cool ways of saying things, great illustrations, you know, wonderful stuff. And they were looking at these people who really had it made by the world's standards. And these, these great speakers were working their way into the church to get influence and money and, and power over people. And they're like, Paul? You're still listening to Paul? I mean, have you seen how that guy dresses? Isn't that the guy that came in here and like mumbled his way through some, some kind of sermon? Are you going to listen to him? Look at him. He's poor. He's not well connected. He doesn't know anybody. But look at us. We're special. And the, the problem in Corinth was they were starting to be persuaded by that. Look at these people. Look at the influence they have. Look at how popular they are. Maybe Paul doesn't have it all together. I mean, if he was something special, wouldn't he look more special? And Paul is trying to convince the church in Corinth that no, you are looking at things no differently than the world. And so he wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You see what Paul is saying there. There is a worldly way of looking at people, Paul says, according to the flesh. Using the world's standards to judge people. The world looks at people in a specific way. It looks at people based on their appearance. Based on their sense of fashion based on their race, their class, their gender, their status, their influence, their experience, their education, their social circle, their connectedness, their family, and a hundred other things. The world looks upon us in that way and makes judgments based on that for good or ill. If you have what the world values, then you come out looking good in the world's judgment. But if you lack the things the world values, you are despised. But we, Scripture says, we do not look at people that way. We once looked at Christ that way. We once looked at Jesus and saw Him the way the world does. Humble. Maybe a little foolish. Maybe a little kooky. Paul says, look, we don't see Him that way anymore. We see what He really is. And everyone who is in Him, we now see that they too are a new creation. And we don't judge them by the things that we used to use to judge. And so Jesus goes on to explain in verse 10, I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now don't read too much into this verse. This should not be understood as some explanation that each person has a specifically assigned guardian angel. Um, for one reason, if, if Jesus is speaking of guardian angels, He's just said they're always looking at the face of God, which doesn't leave much time for guarding those that they're supposed to be guarding. So I would be concerned if that's what this was. No, that's not what this is talking about. We actually need to read and understand this in the, in the terms that Jesus' listeners would. How would a person in the ancient Near East understand what Jesus just said? 
Well, in the ancient Near East, when you have kings who have a throne room and, and they're the presence of the king, who is allowed in the presence of the king? Not just anybody. You can't just decide today's a good day to go make my thoughts known to the king and, and just burst into the presence of the king and start talking or making your request or whatever it is. In fact, it was very severe if you did that. There were guards. There were rules and laws. In fact, in, in the book of Esther, which is uh, a story in the Old Testament about um, a young lady who uh, was married to a king in, in the ancient Near East and becoming aware of a threat against God's people, she was urged, hey, go to the king and tell him what's going on. He doesn't know what's happening. And she knew that if she just, on her own, even as the queen, went into the throne room, she would not be safe. In Esther chapter 4, she says, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called by the king to come see him, there's but one law, to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. And Esther, as we later learn, risked her life, went in risking death. So you can't just go in and see a king. Not anybody gets to stand there in the presence of the king. But who can? Who can at any time run in and see the king without fearing being blocked or, or put to death? Who's the king always going to welcome? His children. His children. Okay? If any one of you makes a run at this stage right now, I'm going to stop you. But there's three people in this room, four, I'll count my wife too, that, that could come up to the stage and I will not stop them. That's not an encouragement to do so, kids. I'm, not that I'm comparing myself to a king. But the point is the same. Jesus is setting out this image of who may always have a presence. That's what that word presence means. To be in front of, to be near, to have an audience with. Who always has a presence with the king? His children. And those ministers, those guardians who watch over his children. In fact, in Scripture, it later calls angels. In, in Hebrews, it says, are not angels the ministering spirits over those who are to receive salvation? The angels of God minister to you, and, and in their capacity to minister to you, they always have access to the Heavenly Father for your sake. That's what Jesus is saying. That His love welcomes His children. And this needs to affect you in two directions I mentioned earlier. With an inward look and with an outward look. Inwardly. Because you need to hear this. If you are a child of God in Jesus Christ, you are welcome. You are welcomed in the presence of God. Not on the basis of anything you do or have done or might hope to do. And my kids love listening to the, the musical uh, Hamilton which is the story of, of Alexander Hamilton, the uh, tre first treasury secretary, founding father. And there's a, uh, there, part of his character in this musical is that he is, um, is tremendously self-conscious of his low estate, that he is, he's an outsider, and he's got everything against him, and he's got no family background to brag about. And so when he's trying to, uh, to win people's favor and impress them, and they say, oh, where's your family from? He says, it's not important. There's a million things I haven't done. Just you wait. Just you wait. You need to see what I'm going to do because what I'm going to do will impress you and will make you like me. And we take that attitude towards other people, don't we? We take that attitude before God. God, I know you, you don't think much of me right now, but just you wait. There's a million things I haven't done yet that I'm going to do to win your favor. No. 
the children of the Heavenly Father always have His eye. A welcoming love. That should affect your heart at a deep level that you are always accepted. It should also affect you with an outward look. Because those who have been so welcomed will also welcome others. And so we do not despise the little ones. So it is a love that welcomes. But Jesus gives this parable to show that God's love is even deeper than that. Because a love that welcomes is good enough. It's it's great. But it becomes even greater because it's a love that pursues. It's one thing to welcome someone and give them a place at your table. To have room for them. It's another thing to seek them out and bring them into your home. A loving parent will always welcome a child. But a loving parent of a young child, if they find that child is not at home, they don't just sit back and say, well, whenever they decide to to make their way back here, they'll be welcome. No. A loving parent will pursue. will chase down. will find. And so in verse 12, Jesus says, if a man has a hundred sheep, One of them has gone astray. Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? Now this is the part where as a preacher I'm obligated to say something to the effect of sheep are dumb and sheep get lost very easily and it's very dangerous when sheep get lost and they need a shepherd to keep them safe. So that's what I'm going to do. Sheep are dumb. Okay? Sheep are dumb. And they get lost very easily. And when they get lost, they cannot care for themselves. And they need a shepherd to find them and keep them safe. But this phrase that Jesus uses, saying that one has gone astray, can be misunderstood. We can water it down and and think that it just means, oh, I've I've gotten confused, I feel a little lost, I'm a little disoriented, I'm not exactly doing everything the way I should do it. I need some direction. I need some guidance. We could read it that way, but that's not how Scripture's using it here. Look at how the prophet Isaiah, kids, if you're following in your notebooks, keyword there, the prophet Isaiah talks about us as if we're sheep. And he says in Isaiah 53 that he, the Messiah, was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. My music lovers are hearing... Handles Messiah there. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned, every one of us, to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Now the first thing to note there is that Isaiah says that all of us have gone astray like sheep. All of us. So don't read when Jesus says there were 99 who stayed put and one went astray. Don't read that thinking, well, 99 out of 100 ain't bad. And most of us are okay, but there's that 1%, and we all know who they are, that they're always messing things up. And that's who Jesus is talking about. No. No. When Jesus says, a sheep going astray, you better believe Isaiah 53 is in mind. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, and each of us turned to his own way. The point that Jesus is making is not numbers, 99 verses 1. It's the depth and extent of the love for the one that goes astray. And so he says in verse 14, the point being that it's not the will of my Father in heaven that even one of these little ones should perish. That's the point. That even for one, he will pursue. But anyway, that's a side note. We've all gone astray, which means we've turned towards our own way. We have decided we want a world where God is not in charge. 
That's what it means to go astray. Going astray doesn't have to mean that your life is, is falling apart or that you're in big trouble, legal trouble, or you're guilty of some embarrassing, horrible sin. Anytime you trust yourself and live the way you think is best, as opposed to the way God has called you to live, you are astray. You have gone astray. No matter how we moralize it, no matter, no matter how good we convince ourselves or others that we're doing, you are astray. I want to go back to what Isaiah says about that and what it means. Because in this parable, it's, it's a shepherd chasing a lost sheep. Isaiah tells us what that really meant, what that looked like. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. That's, that's language of the cross. Our Savior was pierced and crushed. Upon Him was the punishment that brought us peace. With His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, everyone to his own way, and therefore the Lord had to lay on Him the iniquity, the, the, the condemnation of us all. We had been the ones to go astray, but He is the one that bears the cost and is punished. What we celebrate when we, when we think of the cross and of the resurrection at Easter time, we celebrate a love that pursued us even to the point of and past death. A love that went to the grave in order to conquer death itself. In order to bring back that which was lost. Like the father played by Liam Neeson in the movie Taken, whose daughter is taken, kidnapped horribly. His, his uh, college-age daughter is kidnapped and he's on the phone with the kidnappers, if you're not familiar with the movie. And he says, I, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If it's money, I don't have it. But what I do have is a very special set of skills that makes me a nightmare to people like you. Okay, I want Liam Neeson on my side when I have trouble. But the point is, he goes out and the rest of the movie plays out. He uses this very special set of skills that he has to find and rescue his daughter. And he will not stop. He just won't stop until he finds her. And that is the love of God. It pursues, it pursues, and doesn't stop. And it goes into the grave to find us. God wants you to know that you are precious to Him. He not only welcomes you, He pursues you. He chases you down, finds you in whatever place you are lost. And He pays the full cost of bringing you back. That's the heart of the Gospel, mind you. Don't settle for a Gospel that comes short of that. Don't settle for a half Gospel. Do you know what a half Gospel is? Many of us were raised hearing or at least believing a half Gospel. A half gospel teaches you that if you believe and you obey and give and live right and do these certain things, then you will maybe satisfy the God whose role in your salvation is to offer you a path. That's, that's about as good as a shepherd who sees a lost sheep over there and says, hey, if you can find your way back to us, it's uh, come on. That's how many of us have viewed God. And the gospel. That he's calling us back and, and, and trying to convince us and offering us a path back. But it's up to us to make it across the long and thorny and rocky ground to get there. And so we have a list of things that we have to do. That, brothers and sisters, is no gospel at all. He is no Savior unless he carries us the whole way home. Only then can we call him Savior. And that is what he has done 
That's what we see at the cross and at the empty tomb, that He has brought us all the way home. There's one more component of God's love that we should mention. It welcomes us, it pursues us. There's one more. And to explain it at the risk of alienating some of you, I want to tell you about a pet that my family had when I was a teenager. It was a pet I didn't like. Dusty. Okay? Now, I, I need to explain. I like some dogs. I like most cats and bunnies. Like, I'm not opposed to dogs in and of themselves. There was something about this one dog I didn't like. And we got Dusty when I was a teenager, and I didn't like him. And yet, when he needed to go out, I let him out. And when he needed to come back in, I opened the door and welcomed him back in. And when he, more often than any dog should have, foolishly ran off and got lost, I would chase him down and find him because that's what you do when you have a pet. That's your responsibility, right? I didn't do it because I liked the dog. I did it because I was a responsible pet owner, or at least part of a family that had a pet. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, I, I think we, in our minds, picture God looking at us that way. We know Jesus died for us. We know that He saves us. We know He promises us a home in heaven, but sometimes we think He's just doing it because He has to. Because we have somehow found the way in, we prayed the right prayer, we made the right commitment, and now He's obligated. And when we go off and commit our sin, God is kind of like Oliver Hardy saying, well, there's another mess you've gotten me into. And he sighs and he goes down and he goes to the cross to die for us, to rescue us. A love that welcomes us and pursues us is great. But what makes God's love beautiful is that it is also a love that rejoices. Jesus says that in verse 13. After seeking out the sheep, if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. Friends, this is significant. Don't miss what this is saying. We too easily, even in the church, create a culture and an atmosphere of shame where those who mess up, those who are still in sin, those are treated as inferior saints, as second-class Christians because they couldn't get it right like the other 99 of us did, right? My friends, that is not in an atmosphere of grace. Jesus says that the shepherd actually rejoices more over the one that was lost than over the 99 who did not need to be found. Do you see your Savior this way? When you picture how God thinks of you and responds to you and how He responds to your prayers even, how do you see Him? It's easy. I know for many of us, it's easy to think God is perpetually angry with you. Or maybe you picture Him as just being patient and frustrated, waiting for you to come around. Maybe you picture a God who's bored with you. Or He's embarrassed by you. Oh, again? He's uninterested. What, what, did you say something? He's tolerant. Okay, okay, fine, fine. That's how we picture God. But the Good Shepherd, the Heavenly Father shown to us in Scripture, rejoices over you. Listen to Zechariah 3, Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. 
Do you picture God singing? Can you picture a God singing songs of love and happiness about you? You should. That's how scripture describes him. Picture a father holding the hands of a little child, spinning around in circles, dancing in the room, singing loud, happy songs. This is no burden. This is no duty. This is no obligation. This is his joy. This is his delight. And that is how your heavenly father sees you. That should transform you. You are the delight of God. And again, the importance of that points both inward and outward. Inward because you need to remember how loved you are. And as you do so, your obedience to God becomes a response to His delight in you. But it also goes outward. Luke gives us this same parable we've been looking at, the story of the lost sheep. But when Luke tells it, he, he prefaces it, he, before he tells the parable, he tells us what's actually happening. You see, Jesus had been receiving the, the little ones. And, and people were despising them. In Luke 15, verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats meals with sinners. And hearing that, Jesus went on to tell not one, but three parables. The parable of the lost sheep that we've just heard. The parable of ten coins, one of which was lost and then is found again. And then the parable of two sons, one of whom is lost and then is found again. And all three of those parables, back to back to back, end the same way. With a party, with rejoicing, with celebrating over the one that was lost and now is found. But what's really interesting to me is how the third parable ends. You, you all know the story of the prodigal son. He goes off, he lives you know, this party lifestyle, and then he remembers the father's love and he comes home and the father runs to him and embraces him and welcomes him home. And that's how the story ends, right? No. No, there's still half the story left. Because it's not a story of one brother, it's a story of two brothers. Not one son, but two. Both were lost. One was lost because he went away. The other was lost, though he stayed home and did everything he was supposed to do. When his brother came home and though presumed dead is, is found alive and returns home, instead of rejoicing, what does the older brother do? He throws a temper tantrum out in the field and sulks and complains until his father comes out because the father goes out to meet both sons. His heart is for both. The one who, who lives sinfully and the one whose heart is cold, though obedient. And he goes out to the older brother and says, this brother of yours is back from the dead. Come home and rejoice. Come rejoice. And Jesus tells it that way because who's he talking to? He's talking to the scribes and Pharisees who are bitter. They're despising the little ones. They're looking down on the sinners. They're looking down on the people that don't fit in with their definition of how you become a good Christian. And Jesus says, come rejoice with me. Rejoice over the ones who have been found. Do not in your heart, that's why he says in verse 10, don't despise the little ones. If you in your heart or your actions or your words treat someone as inferior or unwelcome or unimportant or unworthy, your heavenly Father welcomes them and pursues them and rejoices over them. Why would you treat them any less than that? If you reject my choice of pizza toppings, we'll be fine, okay? We can be friends. If we need to share a pizza, we'll go halvesies. I'll have my pepperoni, pineapple, and onion, and you can have whatever nonsense you want on your pizza, okay? And we'll be fine. 
Because if you reject my pizza toppings, that doesn't strike to my heart. But if you reject my children, you have struck my heart. And if you despise those that God loves, you are striking at His heart. You are striking at His heart. Instead, do as your Father does and love and pursue and welcome them. Easter Sunday is a wonderful celebration, a time when many are reminded what we in the church celebrate every week, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we remember it so often for this very reason, because this is how we know the lengths that God will go to for the ones that He loves. This is the accurate news source that we need, not the sports page or the comics to tell us what's happening but the real story. John 10, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's what we celebrate and remember. Make no mistake, what Jesus described as wandering sheep is in reality our going away, our leaving the shepherd, seeking our own path at a cost, the cost of death. So in order to lay down His life for us and bring us back, Jesus had to go into death Himself. Just as we sang earlier, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. If He had not defeated death, we who had been rescued by Him would still be under threat that someday the enemy would come for us again. Only when death was defeated were His people saved. And so we celebrate not just a Savior on a cross dying so that we may be forgiven, though we celebrate that. Jesus died on the cross taking the penalty of your sins. Those who are in Him and believe in Him are forgiven and saved forever. Amen? But that's not all. But wait, there's more. We don't just celebrate a Savior on a cross. We celebrate a Savior on a throne because He did not just die and stay dead. He rose he rose again, conquering death. And that resurrection allows us to be welcomed in the presence of the Father. That resurrection is the fruit of His pursuit of those that had lost themselves in death. That resurrection is a victory song that He sings as He rejoices over His children. I pray that that would transform us this day and every day. And as you celebrate Easter, anytime you hear of the one who rose again, remember it is the shepherd who pursued his sheep into the grave and rose again in victory, that he may bring them to be welcomed in his Father's presence. Let us pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good shepherd that laid down his life in pursuit of the sheep. And yet in victory rose again victorious. We pray that our hearts by your Holy Spirit would be softened in the understanding of these things and made bold in the application of them. That we who have been so welcomed and so pursued, we who are the theme of your songs of rejoicing, we pray that we also would speak words of welcome to your people that we would pursue them with Your unrelenting love. 
And we, by our words and our love and our actions, would communicate the delight that our Father sings over us. We thank you for these things. We pray according to the will of Jesus. Amen. Amen.